So uh, every once in a while, you're reading along in the Bible, and you hit one of these points where you read something really strange. Right? You're, you're going along, you think you understand what's going on. You're like, I can relate to these people. I can see what's happening. And then you hit something that just you make, makes you feel like you realize, wow, I don't know everything that's going on with these people. What were they doing back then? We're, we're about to go into the book of Samuel, looking at the life of David. And, you know, Samuel is a book you read along. You think there's these conversations between Saul and the prophet uh, Samuel and uh, the great king Saul. And you're thinking, okay, I get this. I, and then you come to a point where you read about a conversation between Saul and the prophet Samuel after the prophet's dead. And, and he, apparently he's having a conversation Saul with the prophet or the ghost of the prophet. And you come to that and you go, whoa, what, what, I don't understand. You know, whatever is going on here, I don't understand it in my experience. And it's not just in the Old Testament, right? We can read in the New Testament a perfectly nice letter like 1 Corinthians. We can go in along and say, I understand these things. These Corinthians have problems with their churches. I have problems with our church. There are problems in their church. So we're there with problems. You get it, right? You can relate to it. But you write, read along, and all of a sudden you get to 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul says, and ladies, when you come into the worship service, wear something on your head, because it says something culturally important about gender. And you're like, what? wait, what? I don't, I don't understand that. What, what's he talking about? You know? Or you go on to chapter 15, where Paul's making an argument about the resurrection. And he's trying to convince the Corinthians that there is a resurrection, Right? And he's making these arguments, and he's saying, you know, there, there's a resurrection for this reason, for that reason. And then he says, you know, there has to be a resurrection of the dead. Otherwise, why do people baptize for the dead? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I don't say, oh, yeah, you know. The last time I was baptizing for the dead, it just became clear that's why there's a resurrection. Oh, you got me, Paul. Good point. No, you read that and you say, what? E e baptism for the dead? Excuse me? What, what, what is he talking about? What are they doing back there? I thought I understood these Corinthians, right? There are these moments. And that is why, as I've been saying, we dig archaeologically. We dig to find evidence because sometimes that sheds light on the parts of them that we don't know. We, we certainly know and can relate to things in the Bible because the human condition doesn't change and God's salvation doesn't change. But there are sometimes these, these forays into bizarro land and we don't understand. And archaeology can be helpful. And by the way, in terms of the head covering issue in 1 Corinthians 11, archaeology is very helpful to, to help us understand what Paul was addressing there. The statues and reliefs of the time, really key for helping us understand Paul there. But you know, the neat thing about all this is that it doesn't obscure the main thing for us. You know, the key points of our faith, what it is to be a Christian, who we really are, they're not clouded over. They still shine through, even though we have these moments where we feel the strangeness. We don't understand what was going on back then. In other words, these, these things, this handful of strange things don't don't keep us from keeping the main thing the main thing, right? It still shines through. 
Now, as we begin this Easter week, as we begin this Holy Week, when we prepare for Easter and Good Friday and, the, and, and bringing our thoughts there, this week in which we're going to introduce to you a strange thing on Thursday night, it's good for us to be able to see that the strange things don't obscure the main thing. In fact, even through the strange thing, we can see the main thing. Please stand with me as we hear read from the, Paul's letter to the Galatians, a, a short passage in the middle of the book of uh, the letter to the Galatians, where Paul wrote in AD 49 uh, to this area in central Turkey. Let's listen and hear this passage. Galatians 2.20 to 3 verse 1. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you. Please be seated. Okay, anything strange stand out to you in that passage? Anybody? Anybody read that and say, wait, this seems strange? Anybody? Yes, Paul? What's that? Who's dead? Okay, good. That's a strange thing. That's good. You know, Christians sort of uh, kind of just gloss over that one and say, yeah, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> That's good. How about something else? How about the last verse? What's that? Okay, that's a little strange. But we could see somebody using that, maybe. How about think about who Paul is talking to and what he says to them? He says to them, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. Now think about that. These people that he's writing to are in Galatia, the Roman province of Galatia, which is central Turkey these days, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. Hundreds of miles. In fact, if, it's, if the audience is central Galatia, it's upward of a thousand miles and yet he's saying somehow they witnessed or saw Christ publicly portrayed or clearly portrayed as crucified. How could that be? There's not, we don't have any kind of record of a large-scale resettlement of this Roman province of Galatia by people in Jerusalem, like maybe they were there and then they moved. We don't see any of that in, in the 40s. Right? So what, what does he mean by that? when he says that? How could they have witnessed or seen Christ portrayed as crucified? Now, some people say, when they read, as you might imagine, after, for 2,000 years, people have been saying, well, let's try to see what this means. And what, what some people say is that Paul is talking about preaching of the gospel, maybe by him or someone else, maybe his preaching, he portrayed Christ as crucified in the way that he preached, 
right? Because maybe that's the case. But um, the problem is that the usual way that Paul would say that is, is that he proclaimed the crucifixion, right? He goes and he says, I proclaim to you the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't say portrayed, but everywhere else he says, I proclaimed it to you. And also it seems, doesn't it seem by the way that he writes that verse one, that somehow the Galatians had something maybe special that other people did not have? Like the way that he says that you, particularly Galatians, you, know, you had this thing maybe that somebody, other people didn't have, but wherever, wherever Paul went, he certainly proclaimed Christ, crucifixion and resurrection. He certainly did wherever he went. So that doesn't seem to quite fit. And especially when he says, before your very eyes, ophthalmus, he says, not ears, before your very eyes. So another thing that people say, another camp, and uh, I would say this is pretty good of, of all the things that I've read, an alternate ex as an alternate explanation, says that, you know, what Paul is really referring to here is maybe not Christ's sufferings, but his own sufferings. That he was somehow filling up. He was, he was Christ's apostle. Christ suffered and was crucified, and he was kind of filling up um, Christ's sufferings by what's going on there. And so that's what he's really talking about. And if the letter was really written to maybe southern Galatia, in the, in the first century Galatia, as a, as a Roman province was really expanding, becoming a very important place to be. And so you could include the, the, the southern towns of Lystra and Derby, Iconium, down there, which is more central, but southern, southern Turkey. Maybe, maybe the letter was to them. And this is an area of debate among scholars as to where exactly the letter was going. But if you could say that it was to the southern churches. If it is to the southern churches, we know that Paul was experiencing persecution and suffering when he went to those towns, right? Because in Iconium, he was really beaten up, right? Beaten up and left for dead. So maybe that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, you know, you, you saw... Christ crucified in my sufferings. Kind of makes sense? Like it could mean that? Well, a lot of, some people, very smart people, think so. It, it, there are difficulties, though, with that, you know. And it is, uh, the difficulty I have is that up till this point in the letter, Paul doesn't talk about his sufferings at all. There's like no introduction. So he comes along, and he's coming along, and he's all of a sudden drops this on. They would be as, com as confused as we would be. He doesn't even say, you know, well, you saw me suffer. And so in that way, you saw Christ's sufferings, right? You saw Christ. It doesn't, doesn't really jive to me. He doesn't even mention his own suffering from persecution. And the whole letter, really, at least not explicitly, so it seems kind of veiled, uh, unnecessarily veiled. And, you know, there is a, this word that's translated portrayed. See that in verse 1? In, in this version, it says clearly portrayed. Christ was clearly portrayed. In the ESV, I think um, it says publicly portrayed as crucified. And, you know, they, they translate it that way, the translators, because it really, the word does have a sense of depiction, 
of something physical, you know, having been recorded. So then, it's, it's a strange moment. It's like, what does he mean, right? What does Paul mean? If he doesn't mean these other things, what's the explanation? Well, here I will suggest to you the expl another explanation. What is Paul saying that was portrayed about Jesus? What was portrayed about Jesus? Well, in verse 20, he's talking about the crucifixion, right? Christ's crucifixion, which paid for Paul's sins. He says in verse 19, he's dead to the law. Verse 20 talks about crucified with Christ. He's talking about the crucifixion. And then verse 20, same verse, Christ is alive again. He's alive, and I live, says Paul, because he rose from the dead. He rose from the death of that crucifixion. So Paul's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as he repeats in verse 1, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying in verse 21, in between there, that's what justifies us. It's these things that justify us, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. That's what puts us right before God. Not these other things like works of the law. That's what's being displayed. So here's a question for us this morning. Is it possible that the Galatians saw a physical artifact that displayed these things? Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Is it possible that it was portrayed before their very eyes? That's the question I want to address with you this morning. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Could, that, could God have left evidence of something important that he had done? And I think for some of us, the question even before that might be, would God have left some evidence in this way? Would God have left something? And for some of you, might be, the answer might be no. I don't think he would leave something physical like that lest we come to worship it, you know, and idolize it, right? That's a problem. But if, I, if, I, if that is your concern, I would say good concern to have, but I would recall for us that the commandment that we want to obey is that we sh thou shalt not make any graven image and thou shalt not bow down and worship it. So we should not make a graven image with our own hands and bow down and worship it. That's the commandment. That's what we need to obey the commandment isn't really saying that there should be no mementos. There should be no physical symbols of remembrance for us in the faith. And I know it's not saying that because I look and see that sometimes among the people of God, there are these physical symbols that are used to remember what God has done. We can see it even, even the beginning in the first book of, of the Bible in, in the book of Genesis. You know, when they went out to Egypt, Joseph, the great patriarch, died. And they kept his bones. For centuries, for hundreds of years, they kept his bones as a remembrance. You can read about it in Genesis 50. And so they still had them when they left Egypt. So it's hundreds of years later, which means in all those hundreds of years, you could go... I assume, to the elders of the tribe of Ephraim or Manasseh, you could say, I want to see Joseph's bones, or I want to see where they're kept. And there was a place for them. We know because when they left, they still had them. You could go and see. Why? Why was that important? 
It's because it, it, it brought home to them that God really did these things. He actually physically, these stories about the patriarchs, they really happened. It wasn't just some kind of nice spiritual lesson. They actually happened. And here are the bones of the Joseph that we have to remind us that they really happened. You go a little further. Go to, you know, we're going into the book of Samuel. We're going to look at the life of David. Remember at one point, and we're, we're going to look at this in a few weeks, where David has the great contest with the giant Goliath. He slays Goliath. He cuts off his head. Then he keeps the head and his armor. I know it's a little gruesome, but, but he keeps the head. He keeps the skull of the giant and the armor. We know, you know, at the time it, it, when it says he slays him, in the book of Samuel, it says, and he, he took the head to Jerusalem. Now, it's puzzling because at the time, the Israelites did not have control over Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't a, a place for them. It was under the control of the Jebusites. So most probably that means that he later brought the head to Jerusalem when he conquered it. So that he had that head, he had that skull for decades along with the armor. Why? Because it reminded him of the thing that God really did. He really did it in the physical space and time that we dwell in. So that David, when he had, you know, discouraging moments, and he had plenty of them, you know, he could say, you know, but there's the, there's the skull. There's the sign of what God did and the promise that was in that of what God was going to do. He didn't worship those things. They didn't worship the bones of David. But they were helpful as mementos. They were used among the people of God. David, I guess anybody else who wanted to, could see this really happened the day that history changed when, when God allowed me to cut off this guy's head. So I would say we do not want to venerate a relic but could God have left evidence of the greatest thing that he ever did in our world? Could that be there to remember what God has done? So in 1355, there surfaced in this tiny town of Lyre, France, a burial shroud of a man mysteriously imprinted with the man's image uh, with, without explanation as to how it was done. And it began to be displayed there, this image somehow imprinted on this cloth. It was displayed by a local knight. His name was Geoffrey de Charnay. Remember that name, Geoffrey de Charnay. And that began the modern exploration of, the, of what became known as the Shroud of Turin. And for the next 680 years, it was tested and examined, retested, every time some new technology came out. So when photography was invented in 1898, took a picture and, and some amazing features of this cloth that had never been seen before because there was no photography, were suddenly visible to people. And on it went. Each time there's a new technology, kind of more mystery to it. 
that happens. So there's a prehistory apparently before 1355. It's also mysterious. We don't know. But if we look back before then, what do we see? Well, Simon Peter had a relationship to the Galatians. We know because in his letter, 1 Peter, he addresses it to Galatia. And we have a record of the apostles kind of doing work up there north of Israel in Syria and in, in uh, the, these Roman provinces that are now kind of Turkey. Next to Galatia, there was Cilicia. Paul says that he went and preached the gospel there. We know from Galatians chapter 1, chapter 1 of this letter. Next to Cilicia, there was the kingdom of Edessa, right outside of the Roman Empire. And why is that important? That's important because right around the time that Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, the king of Edessa is converted to Christianity. According to the church historian Eusebius, King Abgar V was converted at this time. Don't really know how. A later tradition kind of associates it with an image on a cloth. We don't know. After he and his son die, the kingdom returns to paganism. So we don't know. But then, in 525, something emerges, either from Edessa or from Antioch, another northern town up there. And, you know, the story in Edessa, the story goes, after their great flood, you know, they were that town, that city, and that kingdom was subject to floods. I've been there. It's the modern city of Urfa in Turkey. And it's subject to floods. Well, in 525, they had their big flood. The whole city had to be renovated. And they found, it said, sealed by brick and mortar in a compartment above the city gate, a cloth, and on that cloth was the image of Christ. And it was hailed as, uh, the term was achero-poietos, which is a Greek term that means not made with human hands. Now, what was that? Some people say it was the, it was the Shroud Turin. Some scholars, many scholars, would contest that and say it has nothing to do with the Shroud of Turin. We don't know that. What we do know for sure is from that moment in history, all of art changes. Because before that, when you had representations of Jesus Christ, he looked like, you know, a young, youthful Roman guy. He was this attractive Roman guy, clean-shaven. That's, that's the way you would see Jesus represented. After that point, Jesus all the way around, who's ever represented him, represents him the way that we think of him now when we think of Jesus Christ. Long hair parted in the middle, full beard, space between the, uh, the beard and the lip, elongated nose, the very, the very image that we have from the Shroud of Turin. That began right at that moment when this image was discovered. And even art historians will tell you there, there must have been an archetype to, to so transform art that this is now universal the way Jesus is represented. Must have been. What was it? We don't know. What we do know is that in 944 AD, the Emperor Romanus, Byzantine Emperor Romanus, pays the now 
Muslim city of Edessa, 12,000 silver crowns. 12,000 silver crowns. He releases 200 Muslim prisoners, scot-free, free and, free and clear. They just go. And he, he gives them a paper that promises they will be safe from any attack forever. For perpetual immunity. They, have no, they will never be attacked if, by a Byzantine power ever again. The Romanist from Constantinople promises all of these things in exchange for one thing in Edessa, the cloth with the image of Jesus Christ on it. And so that transaction goes down in 944. Apparently, the cloth goes to Constantinople. In 1204, the Crusaders come from Europe and they come to Byzantine, Constantinople. They're very impressed with all the treasures in, in Constantinople. There's just ama they're amazed at all the treasures, including what they, is reported by the, by the crusaders is the burial shroud of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, in one of the darkest moments of church history, completely awful, the crusaders sack Byzantine, uh, Constantinople. They go in and they pillage it all. They steal the treasures and the shroud among them apparently is lost. Except that in the centuries afterwards the Knights Templar are reputed to be venerating in secret a mysterious image of a bearded man. The Knights Templar from whom is descended Geoffrey de Charnay. <laughs> okay. So if you followed all that, you, what do we make all of that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to make of all of it. But the question is, is uh, you decide. The question to, uh, that we're left with is, could God have left evidence of the greatest thing that he ever did, the thing that he did on Good Friday, the thing that he did on Easter morning? Not to worship, but to remind us, in these, just like these other physical objects, of how physical God is. That when he acts, he really does act in our lives, in time, in space, in history. He has acted. So, would he? Could he? Come this Thursday night and see. Let's think about it together. But, you know, whether that, the Shrav Turin is authentic or not, whether Jesus resurrection did something left something on a cloth the story that it tells is the very story that paul wants to tell to the galatians this is the very thing that the apostle paul wants to hold before the eyes of the galatians and what's the story it's two parts part one he really was crucified jesus christ gave himself to be mangled he went through amazing torture, very physical. And, you know, we tend to focus on the spiritual anguish. Right? We tend to read the account, and we want to focus on when Christ is on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's true, you know, that 
is something that he went through for us. And that was his loss. That, that thing that powered him. You know, he was, he was, this was the center of Christ. This is what made him, uh, powered him, gave him his identity, made him who he was. It was his relationship with the Father. And whenever he talks about it, you notice he's always very, very full and effulgent about what it is. He's like, you know, I, I always do the things that please the Father. The Father loves me so much. It was that love, that fellowship that he had with the Father that just was the center of, of Christ and the meaning of Christ. You know, there was one time where Jesus, it seems like he relaxes a little and he tells the apostles what he's really feeling. You know, you read through the Gospels, it's very clear that Jesus is always about, you know, focusing on other people and what they need. He's always about what other people are feeling, what they're going through, what they need, right? But there's this, there is this moment, it's very rare, at the Last Supper, you read about in John 14, where Jesus actually seems to uh, let down his guard. You know, he actually tells them what he's think, what he's feeling, like how this is affecting him. There is this moment at the Last Supper, kind of tender moment, where he tells them and he's going away. They're very upset. And Jesus allows himself a moment of saying, this, what about me? What does he say? He says, you know, if you really loved me, you would rejoice at what I'm saying. I know you're upset about my going away, but if you really love me, you would rejoice at what I'm saying because I'm going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I am. Now, that verse, unfortunately, has become very controversial because uh, people read it and say, what does that mean about the relationship of the Trinity and, and, uh, and what's going on there between the Father and the Son? They focus on the theology of the Trinity there. And yeah, okay, we've got to figure out the Trinity, yes. But if we do that, we might lose what Jesus is actually saying there, the intent of what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you really love me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father, and the Father is just so great. <laughs> He's so great, and I'm getting to go there. That's what he had. That's what he lost on the cross. That's what was stripped from him. That euphoria, that fellowship, that, that delight in, that being delighted in, that's what was stripped from him on the cross, and it was stripped for you and for me. So yes, it is spiritual what he went through, but friends, the physical suffering of the cross is the counterpart to that pain. It's a window into his anguish. And so the 120 dumbbell-shaped wounds across his back and his legs in the in the exact shape that would be left by a Roman flagellum, that testifies to what he went through for us. The spiritual, physical anguish of being separated from the one who is so great so that we would be spared the physical, spiritual anguish of hell. That's the story. And... You know, he volunteered for that. One thing that we can have Thursday, if you come, 
you can't look at this shroud without being focused on that pain. And you, you, can't, you can't look at it without getting uncomfortable. That's appropriate. That's appropriate. That's part one. Part two of the story, verse 20. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's what we're going to be celebrating. And that's what Paul is saying here. Christ lives in me. This message is, is the resurrection. That is why we live. That's why we will live. That is why we can have victory over the things that plague us in our lives. That's why we can have victory over sin in our lives. Because Christ rose. You know, I was just speaking and praying last week with a young man, Jonathan Duncan, who was giving his testimony. He actually did this on YouTube uh, very bravely because he was someone who was describing his life and said, you know, I was looking for fulfillment and I was trying all different ways. And so he went full-on gay. He was like a full-on lifestyle of trying to find fulfillment in the love of a man. Continued to pursue that. Outside, his life looked great. He was this fashion um, designer. He was, his, his life was going great. Inside, he was crumbling. And that wasn't working out for him. So you know what he decided? I really want the love of a man. And so I'll become a woman. And so he started to go down that route, started going trans. Until God spoke to him. He was in New York, sitting there, and God actually spoke to him. You know what he said? He said, this is not you. And then he experienced the power of the resurrection in his life. But he said it feels like it, it was something coming out of him. It changed. You can actually see this. He put it on YouTube, the Jonathan Duncan, uh, the drip. When he put it up, it immediately got 40,000 views right away like that. It attracted almost upward of, of 1,000 comments. And it's really something, it's quite simple. He's just telling his story. The reason I think why I was so attracted to people, it hasn't reached the point where, you know, YouTube will take it down <laughs> because it's too, it's too influential. So you can still see it on YouTube. But the reason why I think it was so effective it's because it's just a simple story, he said, and he's very honest about it. It's not like he's saying, it's not like I no, no longer have any temptations or all problems are gone out of my life. I'm not saying that. But he's saying it's absolutely true. My orientation changed toward Christ. That is what Paul is talking about in verse 20. That is what he means. It's not my life that I'm living now. It's the resurrected life of Christ in me. It's the power in all of our lives to be different. We're here, sitting here, because we believe that Christ gives us the power to be different. And he does give us that power to be different. That is the, that is the story of the resurrection. That's the message of the resurrection. Christ in me. And it's unexplainable by natural means. It just is unexplainable. So that power, completely unexplainable by natural means, imprints the very outer fibers of the cloth of this world. That's Christ's resurrection in us. That's the story. So 
I invite you to come Thursday night. I invite you to come Friday night as we go through this story together. You know? And we see how physical Christ was and what he's done. Let us now turn to two other symbols, very physical symbols that Christ has given to remember what he has done in the Eucharist. Please stand with me.